Okay. So welcome back. We have, uh, we're on Malbim on Mishlei, the book of Proverbs. I do just want to say that next week we will have class. The following week, we will not have class because my daughter is getting married that week. Ah, yay. So exciting. So we're going to miss a week uh, for the best reason. Thank God. So grateful. Um, and for today, we're going to plan on finishing chapter 19. So let us get to it. All right. We're on verse 25. We're on page 202 in the book. For those of you who have the book, um, Adrian, this is the book that we use. It's, uh, it's in the WhatsApp chat, the icon, the picture of our group. So if you need, if you want to get it, some people just listen, but if you want to follow along in the book, you can let me know and I'll help you get a hold of that. Hmm. Okay. Welcome, Sherry. Hi. All right. So verse 25, we're going to do 25. Sometimes the um, commentary does, you know, t- kind of ties a few verses together as a unit. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to read 25, 26, and 27 together as a unit. Welcome, Erin. Nice to see you. You too. All right. 25. Late taket upesi yarim. Smite a scorner and a simple man will become sagacious. And reprove a man of understanding and he will understand knowledge. So, hi, April. Um, So the simple understanding of this verse is that if somebody, I mean, basically is acting stupid, like they're making fun of wisdom or they're refusing to... um, they're refusing to embrace a truth because it's inconvenient or uncomfortable for them. You should kind of be hard on them. You should smite them. You should reprove them, you know, and you should have the guts to tell them, you know, and obviously I'm going to qualify this because we talk about this uh, all the time in Musser, but right. This person is saying, what? That's ridiculous. That's stupid. You know, you can have the courage to say to this person, listen, you know, all due respect, but I think that you might not be taking all of the facts into consideration. I think that you might be will acting according to what you want to do instead of what is actually the right thing to do. And if you do this, says King Solomon, he will become sagacious and he will understand knowledge. So basically, if a person, and this is the big if, if a person might be open to your words, if you know that you can make a difference to this person, right? Then you should tell them when they're acting ridiculous because you can help them to be more wise. This is a very interesting phenomenon that is happening right now with the current Israel crisis and big conversation happening all over in the you know pockets of the Jewish world in which I find myself. Um, and there was actually a guy, Hen Mazig, who was here last night in, in Cleveland speaking for the Federation. Um, And I know I wasn't there, but I heard a big topic of the conversation is when should you put out your opinion on social media when people are saying ridiculous things about Israel, right? And all these different kinds of guidelines, when it does pay to say something, when it doesn't pay to say something. But, you know, here's something interesting. I was in Los Angeles a few weeks ago for a momentum event. There were a bunch of women who um, were supposed to go to Israel in the fall and the trips were all canceled, uh, you know, due to the war. And um, 
we we did an event to help these groups, you know, kind of reconnect to Israel and what mobilize them and activate them and what can they do. So there's this a young woman, she works for Stand With Us. I don't know how many of you know what Stand With Us is. It's an organization that supports Israel and, you know, helps Israel advocacy and all this. Um, so her Instagram name is that Persian Jew. I forgot her real name. She's maybe in her mid twenties. Her parents escaped from Iran. Um, and she is very, you know, she works for stand with us. She's very out there on social media. And what she was telling the group, because one of the questions, you know, the group wanted to know were like, when exactly what we're talking about, when people say the most stupid and uninformed and ignorant things about Israel, when does it pay to tell them how it is? And when does it pay to just ignore them and keep on scrolling? So what she said was fascinating. She said, 10% of the people that you're going to meet on social media are squarely in your corner. They believe in Israel. They support Israel. They support Israel's right to defend herself, blah, 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 blah. Those are not the people you need to worry about. Another 10% of the people are enemies of Israel. They hate Jews. You're never going to talk sense to them. They cannot be convinced you're not talking to those people either because it's pointless. But she said, she claims this sounds like a bigger number than I would have guessed, but she's actually, this is based on data, not on Ruchi's opinion. (laughs) So 80%, she said, are simply misinformed and ignorant. And if you put out solid, calm, rational education, then you have the power to change minds. And I thought that was fascinating. And there was actually a woman who was at this event last night with Hen Mazig, and um, she shared something that I want to read to you. Because again, I think that there is wisdom to be mined here in general for how to tell people off when they're saying stupid things. Um Okay, he said, um, your default is to ignore the hater because 95% of the time they aren't worth your energy or attention. Um, But he said, you need to be careful with your word power. For instance, don't say Israel is in a war to release hostages. Instead, say Israel is engaged in a rescue mission. So, right, so the bigger story here is that it's not just about telling somebody, it's about the words that you use. And your words should be calibrated for maximum positive impact. The problem is when we're triggered is that we often use the words for maximum emotional release. (laughs) And that's not necessarily what is going to, what what are we trying to do in this verse? We're trying to make the stupid person smart, right? If you're trying to change minds, then you really have to be very mindful of your language for maximum positive impact. Okay, the next thing she said, um, instead of this person's an anti-Semite, say this person is harmful, sorry, this person is harmful to the Jewish people because many people don't know what an anti-Semite means, but they can understand harmful to Jews. Again, just suggesting different choices of words which will have maximum impact on another person. Don't be aggressive or confrontational, Right? I mean, it's really hard not to be aggressive and confrontational when people are saying really stupid, hateful things. Um, For instance, if someone says Israel is an apartheid state, ask them to explain what that means to them. Be kind. Ask them their perspective. Obviously, this is for people who are friends and acquaintances, not the haters. The 10%, you're not going to change their minds. We're not talking about them. But for the 80%, right? Anyway, I just thought that was so interesting because it's, it's one specific 
uh, scenario, but it's emblematic of how to have these kinds of conversations. If your goal is to help people see a better light than what they're seeing right now. If your goal is just to discharge your frustration, you're not going to get anywhere. And actually you're not going to discharge your frustration because it's an exercise in futility and you're just going to end up more frustrated. Okay. So that's the first verse. Smite a scorner and a simple man will become sagacious. Reprove a man of understanding and he will understand knowledge. Okay. 26. Mishadate of Yavriach Aim, a son who brings foulness and disgrace, will desolate his father. Aim, uh, um, ben, may, oh, sorry, hold on, let me read the whole thing. Mishadate of Yavriach Aim, Ben Mevish Umachpir, a son who brings foulness and disgrace, will desolate his father and drive away his mother. So this is something that also came up in previous verses, a similar that we've mentioned previously, a similar concept, which is that when a child, it doesn't mean a little child, it could be a grown child, acts badly, what they have to understand is they're not only bringing destruction upon themselves, but they're also bringing so much pain and aggravation to their parents, right? And so one of the things that King Solomon says is that a parent has to try their hardest to teach their kids positive values and to help them understand that doing the right thing is sometimes uncomfortable, but worth it, right? The other day I was having a conversation with one of my kids and I said, you know, uh, there's no toilet paper in your bathroom. And they're like, yeah, I know. I put tissues in the bathroom. I'm like, no, 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 no. Toilet paper. They're like, well, the toilet paper is in the garage, I said, I know it's so far. <laughs> I may have used a little unnecessary sarcasm. I'm like, I know it's so far, but it's so good for you to walk so far to do the right thing. <laughs> Not sure they appreciated my snarky approach, but listen, you know what I mean? You got to tell them the unpopular things because that's your job, right? And Hopefully, we don't always have control over the results, right? As I always say, but we hope and pray that if we guide our kids appropriately, we're not afraid to say no. We're not afraid to tell them uncomfortable truths that hopefully they will grow up not to give us this foulness and disgrace, right? Um, there's this rabbi who runs a school in Israel that my daughter went to for her gap year. His name is Rabbi Zachariah Greenwald, and he's a... Uh, I've mentioned him before. I think I even shared an article of his. He is a really brilliant guy in the field of education. And so he writes this like Q&A education column in one of the Jewish periodicals that I read. And so this mother writes, she's like, listen, oh, this is the one I told you guys about. Okay, I'm going to repeat it because it's so good. And he's like, um, the, so this questioner is asking like, what should I do? My kids are growing up in this age of entitlement, you know, and everybody gets this and everybody has that. And it's like really hard for me to say no, you know, but like we can't afford all these things. And somehow or another, their friends are all affording them. I'm not sure how, you know, and she's like, how do I say no to my kid? You know, I don't want them to grow up spoiled, but it's so hard to say no. So my daughter did not even read the answer to this article, but she was telling me, she goes, I know exactly what Robert Greenwald is going to say. I said, what? She's going to say, the only way to teach your kids no is to not say yes. <laughs> He's like, it's very, and that's exactly what he said. 
He said, it's very simple. You can't prevent them from feeling entitled. You can't prevent them from desiring things. That is the culture that they're growing up in. That is the generation that they're growing up in. You can control whether you buy it for them, right? So um, anyway, it's it's not as easy as it sounds. I think we all know that. But the bottom line is that King Solomon, not in this particular verse, but in many other places, he says, like, if the parents do the tough stuff in advance, hopefully they'll be less um, positioned to experience this, you know, how does he put it? This foulness and disgrace at the end. Okay. You know, again, no guarantees, but this is how we increase the odds. Uh, and then finally, verse 27 um, avoid my son from having to hear severe moral instruction by straying from the words of knowledge. So basically he's talking, King Solomon is talking to his child and to all of us. And he's saying, don't put yourself in a position where somebody is going to have to tell you something really unpleasant that you don't want to hear. How do you prevent that? You prevent that by not straying from the words of knowledge. So you have knowledge. King Solomon's like, I'm giving you wisdom. I'm showing you the right way to behave. Now you get it. Now you get to have a choice. Are you going to listen to those words of wisdom or are you going to ignore those words of wisdom? If you ignore those words of wisdom, King Solomon is saying, I am telling you this is a guarantee. It will come back to bite you. And I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want it to come back to bite you. So maybe you could plug into the words of wisdom at the beginning of the process so that it doesn't have to bite you at the end of the process. And then you get it with interest, right? You pay you pay off your bills on time. It hurts. It hurts to come up with that cash every month. But if you delay it, if you defer it, it's going to take a much bigger pinch out of your budget, much bigger bite. Okay, let's see what the commentary has to say. Page 202. A simple person learns sagacity, wisdom, not from the proofs of reason, but from punishment. So what does that mean? It means you could explain to somebody from today to tomorrow why they should do something. Most people are not going to listen until it pinches them, until it becomes uncomfortable for them, right? I could tell my kid a hundred times to put their clothes in the hamper. You know when they're going to learn to put their clothes in the hamper? When I only wash the clothes in the hamper and then they have nothing to wear. If they don't feel the pinch, this is a simple person, right? A simple person has a really hard time understanding theoretical wisdom. They just understand what actually affects them. Welcome, Susan. Hence, the punishment of scoffers acts on him as a deterrent. Right. So that's why it says in the verse, smite a scorner and a simple man will become sagacious. So he only understands this language when it hits him over the head. Right. Oh, then he's like, oh, my gosh, this really hurts. I, I, I uh, you know, it, it, my teeth are hurting. It's really time for me to go to the dentist or um, I am really not performing at work. I need to get a better night's sleep or um, my body is really not feeling good. I really need to start exercising. Um, so unless people feel, unless the simple person feels his own 
consequences, he's not going to be motivated to do better. A man of understanding does not need this kind of lesson. So the second half of verse 25 says, reprove a man of understanding. In Hebrew, it's navon. Navon is a person who has this type of wisdom called bina, which is understanding, which is where you extrapolate something from something else. You know how to read between the lines, right? That's a higher level of wisdom. He doesn't need this source of this sort of lesson for your response to rational reproof. He, if he is told, for example, so this is moving on to his 26, how much pain he will cause his parents if he befouls and disgraces him, the, him, them by his actions. So this person, this wiser person will respond to reason. And if you tell them, listen, you haven't gotten there yet. You haven't felt the pinch yet, but I'm telling you that if you continue with this behavior, you know, there are really going to be negative consequences. A wise person doesn't need to wait for the consequences. They can take to heart this kind of um, ex explanation and it can have a powerful impact on them even before they have felt the pinch. Hence the behest of verse 27, my understanding son, you have no need of the severe moral instruction and punitive discipline due a scoffer. So now King Solomon, hi Tova, welcome back. So now King Solomon is talking Thanks. to his child, right? And he's saying, listen, I'm begging you, like be that wise person. Don't be that kind of person who keeps saying, no, nah, it's not true. It doesn't apply to me. It's not a big deal. I'll be fine. Don't be that kind of person who keeps engaging in bad behavior and bad habits and ignoring their health and ignoring their soul and ignoring their purpose and ignoring their loved ones and doesn't do anything about it until it really hurts. So King Solomon says to his son, I'm begging you, don't be that guy. Be the wise person who can understand the concept of negative consequences before they actually happen. Learn from the example of the befouling, disgracing son to keep the words of knowledge well in mind and thus, and thus turn away from the actions of the scoffers. And one very powerful way to do this is to learn from the mistakes of others. Let that be your pinch. When you see somebody else doing something and you see them going down a bad way, right? And causing negativity, be that person of Bina, understanding the person who can intuit something from someone else and say, wow, look what's going on over there. I really don't want that to happen to me. Whew, I better straighten myself out. So maybe somebody else's rock bottom can be your wake up call and you don't have to hit rock bottom yourself. There's a very interesting observation in the Torah in Parshat Nusso. The Torah portion of Nusso covers a variety of topics, but two of the topics that are covered, which are seemingly unrelated, are first, there's a whole section about an unfaithful wife. So a woman who is suspected of infidelity, and there's this whole process by which she goes to the temple and they write God's name down on parchment and they put it in the water and they drink the water. And, you know, if she's guilty, this happens. And if she's not guilty, she gets all these blessings and blah, 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 blah. After that whole story, that's called an Isha Sota, the unfaithful wife. And then right after that is a story of a Nazir, a Nazarite. The Nazarite was a person who would swear off drinking and 
any, you know, any grape drink from grapes, any intoxicating beverage, he would grow his hair long. And the Torah says, what is the juxtaposition of these two stories, right? If the Torah has two things, one after the other, there's some reason why these two stories were placed in proximity with one another. So the Torah Hi, says- Hi, how are you? Um, I'm going to get- uh... So the Torah says, you know why that happened? Because this Nazarite was at the temple and he saw what happened to this unfaithful woman. And he said, oh my goodness, is that what happens when you start getting loose and you start drinking and you start doing things that are, you know, you're attractive to somebody else's spouse. And he takes a lesson from it. And he says, you know what? I'm going to grow out my hair so it's less attractive. I'm going to not drink any wine ever, which both of those things are above and beyond what a Jew is asked to do, right? I mean, in in Judaism, we have boundaries when it comes to wine, but we generally utilize wine as a way to celebrate our special occasions. And this guy's going above and beyond, and he takes a vow of being a Nazarite because he saw what happened to this woman, and he said, God forbid I should ever be in that kind of temptation and that kind of moment. And that is considered praiseworthy. Look at what happens to somebody else and take that lesson for yourself. Don't wait until you're in trouble. How amazing it could be if you could learn from what happens to other people. Okay, we will take a pause for any thoughts or comments. Rochi, I was yeah, thinking we were talking about how we should learn from others. There was a funny meme that went around that was like, I never make the same mistake twice. I do it like five or six times just for good measure. That's good. <laughs> right. There's actually a quote from a famous person, which I have to find. Um, hold on. Let me see if I can find it. You should know I would not put this in the same category at all, but just to give you an example of how powerful this is, um, you know, some of you know, I don't, I don't really drink coffee. I mean, I drink it sometimes, like if I'm very tired at four o'clock in the afternoon, I'll have a coffee or if I'm going out with a friend to Starbucks, I'll have a coffee, but it's not like part of my regular day. And a lot of people are really surprised about that. Uh, And I said, you know, when I first met my husband, I was 18 and he was 22 um, and he was so dependent on coffee. He's, he's spoken publicly about this, about his um, dysfunctional relationship with caffeine. Um, and I said, I was so scared off by how dependent he was on caffeine to get through his day that I made like, I don't even remember making a conscious decision, but somewhere along the line, I know I made a decision that I would never, I would never get dependent on coffee. Like the moment I said, I need coffee to start my day, I was in trouble. And I'm not casting aspersion on what anybody else does. Everyone's relationship with caffeine is their own business. But for me, it it scared me that somebody would need a beverage to function, you know? So in a sense, that's part of what I'm talking about. Like if you see what other people are doing and it, it like freaks you out kind of, you know, like, okay, let that be a lesson for you. You don't have to wait until something happens to you. Um, okay. So this quote is from, hmm, 
mind. It's not as great as I thought it was. Okay. Um, Ruchi, quick question. Yeah. yeah. So in these verses, it switches from um, like reproving a man and, to, and then starts talking about a son. So, but does is there a reason why it switches like is, or is it appropriate? It, does it all apply to people who might be influenced by your words or is there a reason it specifically switches to a child? So, yeah. So when it says a son, it doesn't specifically mean like a young child. It means like this adult person, you know, but if, if this adult person doesn't, you know, if somebody gets into trouble with the law or, you know, some kind of, you know, relationship scandal, then no matter how old they are, if their parents are still alive, it will be horrible for them. Right. So I don't think it's switching to a son, meaning it's talking to a child. Um, I think that King Solomon is saying like, um, like here in the understanding, he says, um, my understanding son, King Solomon uses that word to talk to his grown children. When he wrote this book, he was, he was older. He was in his seventies or eighties. He was towards the end of his life. Um, so it's not talking about a young child. It's talking about a grown up. but just consider no matter how old you are, consider your parents in terms of how, how do you live your life and how will they, um, react to your, you know, public misdeeds. Okay, thanks. Okay, anything else before we continue? Okay, so we're going to do 28 and 29 together as well. Um, 28, Eid Bliyal Yalitz Mishpat, a lawless witness mocks justice. Um, and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. So again, we talk about somebody who makes fun of justice, right? When justice is served, they kind of, they mock it and they make fun of it. This is what he calls lawless. Now the Hebrew word for lawless is bliya'al. It's a word that's used very often throughout the books of the prophets. And it means like an, a person without morals, the root of that word is bli ol, and ol is a yoke, Y-O-K-E, a burden that a person should have a, a yoke or the is carrying around the yoke of mitzvot. That means that you have the responsibility of acting according to a certain set of moral principles. And then there are some people who throw off this yoke and they're like, no, thanks. I don't really want to have any rules. No, thank you for everyone telling me what to do. Rules are for other people. Me, I just get to do what I want. That is a bli ya'al. Bli ol without a yoke. Okay, that's what it means. Here it's translated as lawless, but I just wanted to explain to you the context of that word. So this is a lawless witness who makes fun of justice. Ufi rishayim, the mouth of the wicked, yivala oven, devours iniquity. So iniquity meaning sin, right? So this person, he doesn't just do wrong things. He doesn't just sin. He like gobbles it up. He's so excited. He's, he can't wait, you know? Like there are some people who eat and they, you know, sometimes I go out for lunch with a friend and I'm like ravenous, you know? And they order something 
and they're there with their fork and they, they're not eating because they're so busy talking and they kind of, they take a bite and then they put down their fork and then they wait five minutes. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm inhaling my food. I'm so hungry. We'll talk soon. I promise, you know, so there's, you can eat, you take a little bit, you stop, you wait, you nosh, you graze, right? And then you can like inhale your food. That's two different approaches to sin. You could do something wrong because whatever, you're human, you do, ah, you lapse a little, you come back, you do something wrong, ah, you kind of regret it, right? And then there are people who are like full on, they are all in, they can't wait. That's very different. So this person, this wicked person devours iniquity. He just can't wait to gobble it up. And there's no remorse afterwards. It's shameless. It's remorseless. That is the wicked, okay? Risha in Russia. A Russia, ironically, is a wicked person, but it's a very specific category. It means somebody, it's not just like a random, you know, epithet. It's a person who is remorseless and shameless, and they know exactly what they're doing, and they just don't care. Okay, so that's 28. 29. Judgments are prepared for scorners and whiplashes for the back of fools. So King Solomon closes off this chapter by telling us something that he reassures us about over and over and over again in this book. I know you think that wicked people prosper. And when you look around the world, it can sure seem like the nice guys finish last. But I'm promising you, says King Solomon, I am guaranteeing you, justice will come for the wicked. It's just a matter of time. Everything happens on God's timeline. The wicked destroy themselves. They bury themselves. They antagonize all their friends. Nobody knows who they can trust. They, they have to have security all over the place. They have to, I mean... I can't even imagine what kind of life that is where somebody has to constantly watch their back because they don't know, you know, who's going to double cross them or stab them in the back. It's like, what kind of a life is that? They're, they're going to bury themselves. So don't worry. Judgments are prepared for scorners and whiplashes for the back of fools. So King Solomon is reminding us that it always pays to take the high road. You will do better. You will not feel this pinch of the negative consequences of your behavior. If you take the wise path in life and you act according to your wisdom, you're not going to have to worry about getting stabbed in the back. You're surrounding yourself with people that you can trust, with people who care about you, with people who are honest and kind. And you likewise are honest and kind. You do the right thing. Don't worry. You're going to be okay in the end. And those people are going to finish last. And so you can rest assured that there is justice in this world. Okay, commentary. With his falsehoods, a wicked, lawless witness can cause an, man, an innocent man's death and a complete mockery of justice. So we talked about this, a lawless witness, right? This person who is lawless, who has shucked off of himself the yoke of moral responsibility, right? If he's a witness in a court case, He's going to say whatever he wants. He's going to lie under oath. He doesn't care. And then this person can cause another, another man's death in complete mockery of justice. And the mouth of a wicked judge can devour and conceal the iniquity. 
So if a witness is wicked or if a judge is wicked, they can, this is a, a different interpretation of the one I told you earlier, right? They can literally devour another human being. They can destroy another human being, right? Um, I don't know if you guys are following that story about that man, Alexei, I forgot his last name from Russia, who was just poisoned. And, you know, you think about like in, in a, in a harsh communist regime like Russia, where there is total lawlessness, the people at the top do whatever they want, right? Look what they, look what they can do. They can cause an innocent man's death and, and devour justice. And it can become really, really disheartening to look at the world and be like, how can this happen? I don't know if you guys have seen this information, but there was communication between this Alexei and Natan Sharansky. Did you guys see? There were letters that went back and forth. I'm going to send you the article. So, so interesting. Um, yeah, so it can be it can be so disheartening. Like we want the happy endings like Natan Sharansky, you know, or like Rabbi Yosef Mendelevich, who came to speak in our community, who is also a refusenik who finally got out and he moved to Israel and he became a rabbi. We want to see it with our own eyes that the righteous will come out okay in the end, right? We want happy endings, whether it's a movie or a book or real life. Like we root for the good guy. We want there to be a happy ending. But sometimes we look around at the world, there are not happy endings. Sometimes the, the good guy is poisoned and dies. It's so hard to understand. For such witnesses, scorners, however, harsh sentences are in store. What they sought to do to their victims, and for such judges, whiplashes of divine judgment. So now the, the commentary is adding something onto what King Solomon said. Not only will the wicked people get punished, but you know how they're going to get punished? With exactly the punishment that they visited upon others. Right? Meaning there's a concept in Judaism called Mida Keneged Mida. A measure proportional to a measure. What does it mean? It means that God will pay us back, whether for the good or for the bad, in exactly the same way, in the same area that we did that good or bad thing. So for example, there's this whole treatise, I have to figure out where to find it, that goes through the 10 plagues and explains how every single one of the 10 plagues was mida connected mida, measure for measure, with how the Egyptians persecuted the Jews. The blood paralleled the blood and the frogs paralleled the frogs and the lice paralleled the lice and the darkness paralleled the darkness. It was really, really fascinating. I'm going to look that up and send it to you. Um, right. So it's true in terms of divine justice, but it's also true in terms of a reward that when you do something good for somebody else, it will come back to you in exactly that same way. Um, and I know some of us have shared stories about, you know, you've given tzedakah and it's this amount of tzedakah. And then you've seen that like Hashem will pay you back from a totally other source in a very similar, you know, if not the same amount of money that it comes back to you and it's mita connected mita, it's measure for measure. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is a parallel. That's so crazy. That's so weird. So, you know, this is really like a very powerful concept that to know that to the extent of the corruption and the wickedness that our enemies have persecuted us, that is exactly how they are going to get it back on themselves. 
you know, and again, I know it's it's such a hard era that we're living in right now with the st- with the hostages still in captivity and some of the hostages who have come out who have been sharing their stories and it's so hard to listen to their testimonies. I struggle so much with how much of it to listen to because on the one hand, it's so unhealthy for me. It, it paralyzes me. I can't sleep. On the other hand, I feel like I have to bear witness for them. So it, everybody needs to figure out that balance for themselves. Um, but one thing that you can rest assured when you hear the horrors and the atrocities, you can remind yourself that God is going to pay evil people in exactly the same way that they meted out their evil. And it's it's a comforting thought. It is, you know, in Judaism, when we hear that somebody was killed for being a Jew, there's a Hebrew phrase that many people say, Hashem Yikom Damam, may God avenge their blood. And what does it mean? It means that we're not into revenge. That's not our way. Israel is not at war right now for revenge. We're at war for self-defense. Um, we leave justice to God, right? We don't we don't take the law into our own hands. We we leave that to God, but we pray that God will avenge the blood of the innocent by bringing it upon the heads of the guilty. And that's why during the Passover Seder, there's a tradition, you know, we, we open the door for Elijah the prophet. And there's a tradition to, to you stand up and you say the following statement. Pour your wrath upon the nations who do not know you. Um and have not called your name, because they have devoured Jacob, and they have destroyed the temple. So what are we saying? We're saying, listen, because we, you know, we just got finished saying how in every generation they rise up to destroy us, but God will save us from their hands. But then we say, you know what, God, there are so many Jews. God will save us from their hands collectively, but we all know so many people who are not saved individually. And for those people, we are saying, God, Pour your wrath upon them. I'm not going to pour my wrath upon them. It's not my job to go hunt them down, right? Although there are Jews who, for example, committed their lives to bringing Nazis to justice, to to legal justice, and that's a very incredible mitzvah, right? But my job is to pray to Hashem that justice should come to the world and that whatever Hashem knows exactly how bad people are and exactly how good they are, I don't. And therefore, he will restore justice to the world. So that's our prayer. That's what we want. Okay. Welcome, Debbie and Adina. Um, And that concludes chapter 19. Congratulations, guys. Okay. Opening it up for any thoughts or comments. Okay, we have a few more minutes. We can do 29 real quick. What, what, Tammy? Did we do 29? Um, oh, you know what? We did not. Oh, well, yeah, we did. We did it in the English. Did we do it in the Hebrew? I don't think so. You're Maybe right. We did the commentary, but we didn't do that. Oh, you're right. You're right. Thank you, Tammy. Okay, let's do that. Okay, so 29, again, we're on page 202. 
judgments are prepared for scorners. Oh, I did do it in, in English. gave and whiplashes for the back of fools. Yeah, I think we did do this. Yeah. So um, yeah, so that's what I was saying that King Solomon is promising us that there will be justice and that these people will experience the full um, the full weight of what they have done wrong. Okay. Okay, so let's let's start chapter 20. Because why not? Um, and it's interesting because we were just talking about wine, right? About this um Nazir, this Nazarite who swears off wine because he just doesn't want anything untoward to happen. Okay, so here we go. Leitayayin Home Shekhar. Wine is a mocker, strong drink causes uproar. And whoever is misled by it is not wise. So this is so interesting because wine has been coming up in a number of my classes. Um, and I, I actually did a podcast for Momentum about wine. Um, and there's so many like contradictory, or at least it seems like it, statements in the Torah about wine. You know, on the one hand, we say, um, we were just talking about this on, on my Tuesday class. Wine makes a person's heart happy, right? But then here, King Solomon is very strongly telling us that wine can be a mocker and strong drink causes an uproar. Whoever is misled by it is not wise. That wine can cause your um, wisdom to leave you, right? Which... I don't know how many of you have ever experienced that, but it is a common phenomenon. Okay. We are not our wisest selves when we are uh, inebriated. Okay. So it's, it's just so interesting because we very much have, um, you know, Judaism doesn't say don't drink wine. In fact, we, like I said, we use it for many of our happy occasions, even our religious occasions, our holidays, Shabbat, a bris, a wedding, right? We always have the wine. So we're not a religion that says, you know, don't drink wine. We are a religion that says, as Judaism says with almost everything, enjoy life's pleasures wisely and with boundaries and with wisdom. And that's how it will actually bring you the most pleasure and not cause regret and hangover and, you know, causing you to say, wait, what happened? What did I say? Who did I, wait, what? You know, which is not a very pleasurable experience at all. Okay. So the commentary says the following. 204. Wine makes a man mock and scorn the moral laws. So one of the things that wine does is it causes a lack of inhibition. And people are much more likely to feel that the rules do not apply to them when they're drunk which must be accepted on faith with integrity since they cannot be proved. Meaning what I can't prove to you, you know, like a geometry proof, why it's the right thing to do the right thing. Some things have to be lived and experienced, right? But when a person is drunk, they're not listening to any of that rationality. For wine can overpower the heart and turn a man to mindless merrymaking. Strong drink, on the other hand, reduces a man to nothing, leaving a man a mere animal. I don't know exactly what he means by strong drink, but I guess it means strong drink that's not wine. Um, 
I'm hardly an alcohol expert, so you'll have to refer to your local bartender for this. I don't know. Um, but either which way, King Solomon is saying both of these things do not bring do not bring you anywhere good. So again, this um, you know, verse has to be compared, which I'll send you guys the podcast if for those of you who aren't on the Tuesday class, you can listen to it. Sort of understanding, you know, a verse like this, which is seems so anti-alcohol you know, versus some of the other verses in the Torah, which which seem to extol the ability of alcohol to bring you to an even higher state of spirituality. So obviously it depends on how it's used, which is the message of everything that we do in Judaism, right? Everything that has a power for great good also has a power for great bad. This is true of our power of speech. It's true of our relationships. It's true of wisdom. It's true of good looks. It's true of money. It's true of sexuality. It's true of food and it's true of wine. You can use everything in the world for the good and you can use everything in the world for the bad. And Judaism is there to teach us how to do that, how to choose wisely, how to elevate our, you know, earthly pleasures by bringing them to a higher state, which will give us true pleasure, not fleeting pleasure. Okay, so we'll close here. Thanks, guys, for participating. If anybody has any final comments or questions, I'm all ears. Okay, good to see you all. Have a beautiful Thursday and a Shabbat Shalom, and I will see you guys, God willing, next week. Shabbat Shalom. Bye. Good to see you all. Bye. Bye.